3: visit Visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go
4: places.
5: You and Me Both is a production of iHeartRadio.
4: I'm Hillary Clinton, and this is You and Me Both. Over the course of this season of the podcast, we've been looking at the challenges democracy faces right here in our own country from the relentless assault on voting rights in the states to an ideologically driven Supreme Court whose decisions have dire consequences for our civil rights and freedom. Today, we're taking our exploration of the battle to save democracy abroad, unpacking the motivations behind the brutal, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine by Putin's Russia The war in Ukraine has captured the world's attention since Russia began its assault on February 24th. I don't know about you, but my heart just breaks watching the Russian military shelling cities, destroying apartment buildings, community centers, religious institutions, homes, lives, everything in their way. And yet my heart also soars while I watch the Ukrainians... Bravely persevere in the fight against this attack to preserve their country and their freedom. There has been incredible reporting from the front lines that is keeping us informed. But I wanna do something a little different today and take advantage of the expertise and insights of two guests I know and admire to talk about how we got here, where this may be heading, what this crisis has to do with us and with our democracy here in the United States as well as elsewhere. Later, I'll be speaking with Mike McFall, who served as ambassador to Russia when I was secretary of state. We both had a front row seat to Putin's return to power in 2012. And we both have some interesting stories to share from that time. But first, I'm talking to historian and journalist Anne Applebaum. Anne's been writing about Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union, democracy, and authoritarianism for years. I don't think it's hyperbole to say she's one of the smartest journalists out there, particularly when it comes to what's happening right now. You may have seen or read one of her many books and articles. She's currently a staff writer at The Atlantic. I've often looked to Anne to bring a wide lens and historical context to the current events in Europe and Russia, and I was eager to talk to her about what's happening now. Anne lives mostly in Warsaw, Poland, but she's currently teaching a course on democracy at Johns Hopkins University. So for this conversation, we reached her in Baltimore. Hello, Anne. Hello, Hillary. How nice to see you. It is really nice to see you. I have to say, uh, you've been a constant source of uh, information and explanation for me over A number of years, but particularly over the last few years. And I'm delighted that you can take some time to be on this podcast. So welcome. Thank you. I'm flattered to be asked and very happy to join you. To get us started, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about Putin's mindset. And I have my own experience uh, as Secretary of State and apparently one of his least favorite people on the planet. Um, and you are an expert on authoritarianism, democracy, Eastern Europe, and so much else. You wrote a really prescient, very smart piece three weeks before the invasion in the Atlantic called The Reason Putin Would Risk War. So, Anne, unpack that for us. What do you know about Putin that enabled you to see that when so many other people were happy to put their heads in the sand So first of all, thanks for
6: having me. And thanks for that particular question. Um, There is a relevance to you, which I which I'll I'll get to in a second. Um, Putin is someone who was very shaped by the events of 1989 and 1991 in the way that all of us were, but he was shaped differently from from you and me and many listeners. Uh, I was in Eastern Europe in 1989. I watched the Berlin Wall fell. It was a moment of great excitement, feeling of liberation. Uh, In 1991, when the Soviet Union came to an end, that felt like a possibility for a new beginning. It was a great moment for Russia. Um, Putin experienced all those events from exactly the opposite point of view. So he saw the Berlin Wall to him. He saw democracy activists, demonstrators on the street Forced the legitimate government out of power and forced him to make this humiliating retreat. You know, there he was, uh, you know, a, a member of the imperial police, you know, policing East Germany, which is where he was based at the time. The KGB headquarters in Dresden, they had to burn their papers in the courtyard. Um, they called Moscow for reinforcements, none came, and they understood the empire was over. He's written about that and spoken about it several times, so we know he remembers that. You know, he then retreated back to Russia, um, where he was part of this, you know, his generation's um, extraordinary theft of resources. Actually, they stole money from the state. They then laundered in the West. Um, They then brought it back to Russia and they um, brought themselves back to power. But he's always harbored this this memory of that humiliating defeat. And for him, it was both a defeat of the empire, but it was also the victory of what he sees as a kind of Western virus, you know, an an anti-autocratic ideology. You know, the language of democracy, the language of freedom, the language of rights, the language of anti-corruption. These are the things that he thinks are the most dangerous to his form of power. And he fears that it could bring him down exactly the way that it brought down the Soviet Union. You figure in this because in 2011, when there were genuine democracy protests in Moscow, um, and these were, I stipulate, grassroots demonstrations organized in Russia by Russians, his reaction was the United States and the CIA and Hillary Clinton have organized these in order to take me down. Um, So he sees all of that language and all of those movements he perceives as being somehow orchestrated by the United States. It comes from the West. It's being done secretly. He, he can't believe that it's authentic and real. And his hatred of Ukraine comes from exactly this, because Ukraine is a country that has been trying for three decades to achieve independence, democracy, freedom, and sovereignty, um, most recently in 2014, when another enormous grassroots democracy movement forced an autocratic um, president who was breaking the Ukrainian constitution forced him to flee the country. And that is what he is most afraid of. And so Ukraine for him is this representative of a set of ideas that he doesn't like. I mean, there may, there is a historical component as well. And this, you know, this kind of traditional Russian feeling that Ukraine's not a real country and it's just part of us, but it's also what's truly motivating him is that this is the language, the language that's used by the Ukrainian president that we're all hearing. Um, him use now, is a problem for him personally. This is what he's afraid of Russians hearing and adopting. A successful, prosperous, democratic Ukraine would be such
4: a challenge to his form of government that he can't tolerate it. How do you think, you know, Putin judged this time? You know, obviously, he had an incredibly wonderful experience with four years of Trump, who was parroting everything that uh, he wanted to hear. Why now do you think that this has um, happened?
6: So it's a, it's a good question. It's actually clear from the nature of the attack that this is something he's been thinking about for a long time. Um, he's been planning it for a long time. He's even been planning the propaganda around it for a long time. Um, it was not a spontaneous attack provoked by something Joe Biden said or Zelensky said. I think he chose the moment for for a reason. I think there are a few things going on. One is that I think during the Trump administration, Putin believed that he might have a way to get Ukraine back or to weaken Ukraine or to undermine Ukraine, maybe even using the United States. Um, He hoped that Trump would be an accessory to that. And I think Putin hoped that maybe in a second Trump term, um, that task would be completed. Um, I think he also imagined both that America was more divided and also that America and Europe were more divided than they are. He did not expect the reaction of the alliance. So it's not just the United States, it's the United States plus Europe, plus other allies. Actually, Japan has been very supportive as well, who are joining in the sanctions, who are helping with military aid. You know, he has a narrative about the West being degenerate and the West being finished, um, and the West's you know, term in, in power being over. And I
4: think he believed his own narrative. Um, and so he thought that this, this would be a good moment to strike. I agree with that. I think that, uh, as you say, this is something that he's long been planning, and uh, it was opportunistic. Now, as shocking as it is to see this invasion, I think a lot of people are similarly just totally confused and, frankly, heartbroken about the brutality anybody who followed what Putin did in uh, Chechnya or in Syria or even in, you know, the parts of Ukraine that he seized. I think 10,000 people have died since uh, 2014 in ongoing fighting with Russian proxies as well as the Russian military. So what do you think is the best case outcome here?
6: The best-case outcome is that Ukraine wins, Um, and by winning, I mean that the Russian troops are forced out of the country. You're exactly right to point to the behavior of Russian troops in previously occupied territories in the past. What we know about occupied Crimea is that they came in, they arrested anyone who they thought might be a dissident, they expelled people from the country, people were disappeared, people were kidnapped on the street who they thought might be political opponents as the russians move into eastern ukraine they are behaving like the nkvd which was the precursor of the kgb did in eastern europe in 1945 i mean sometimes i have this horrible deja vu because i wrote a book about exactly that period and they came in they had lists of people to arrest they terrorized the population and they brought in a regime of terror and my guess is that the russians will do the same and so, and this is why I say this because this is why the Ukrainians are fighting. It's not just about sovereignty. It's also that they know their entire way of life will be destroyed if the Russians come. Um, And for that reason, the only positive outcome that and and I think the one outcome that the United States should be working towards is that the Russians withdraw. Any remaining Russian presence
4: in those territories is going to be pure hell for the people who live there. Right. I agree with that completely. Certainly, in any communication I've had with anybody in any position to influence our policy, I think that is exactly what we should be aiming for, which means that we need to have even more lethal aid flowing into Ukraine to help support them. Where do you stand on this whole issue, Anne, about... uh, You know, direct uh, NATO involvement, particularly direct American involvement in uh, doing more than providing equipment and obviously intelligence and financial support to help the Ukrainians, you know, defend themselves.
6: So I understand why the White House and NATO are reluctant to have a direct confrontation between NATO troops and Russian troops. You know, I understand where that comes from. I understand that people. It's not just that people are afraid of nuclear war. It's also that, you know, we haven't had a proxy war with Russia since Afghanistan in the 1980s, which was a completely different war, completely different era, not the same stakes in terms of, you know, in terms of nuclear weapons and so on. And people just don't know what the rules are. I mean, what counts as escalation? What's a provocation? You know, I don't think we have the same kinds of back channels. There's no Politburo. There are no intermediate institutions with which we have relationships. Um, It's not clear even that ambassadors, you know, have any influence in this, you know, in the Putin regime. So it's, we we don't have any contacts with them. Um, So I understand that reluctance. However, I, I also worry that some in Washington and elsewhere haven't really understood what the stakes are here. I mean, I don't think we can allow Ukraine to be defeated. I think that it would have such catastrophic consequences for us and for our allies, um, you know, both in inviting Putin to come into those territories and in terms of what it would mean for, you know, for the self-confidence of NATO allies, but also other allies around the world. I hope that people in Washington are beginning to be a little bit more creative, that if a no-fly zone is out, then Um, You know, are we thinking about doing big military exercises in the Baltic Sea in order to draw Russian troops away? Are we thinking about ways of training and arming Ukrainians that we haven't tried before?
4: One of the things that you've done so effectively over the last um, couple of years particularly is to link what the stakes are between this rise of autocracy, particularly the aggressive disinformation campaigns uh, of Russia, but linking it to a rise in either an indifference or contempt or rejection of democracy on the part of too many people, in my view, in Europe and in the United States. Do you think that this could be a turning point in waking people up as to what is at stake and what could be lost if we don't protect our freedom and our, our democratic institutions?
6: I think all of the people who took democracy for granted in our society and in, in our in allied societies suddenly realize how much they would have to lose and how much value there is in the institutions that we have and why we need to protect them and reinforce them. I mean, it's been actually very interesting to watch how some of the pro-Russian politicians in Europe have been embarrassed. Salvini who is the leader of the Italian far right went to the Polish border a few days ago where the mayor of the local town shouted at him on camera and and waved a t-shirt that he'd worn in Moscow which is a sort of pro Putin t-shirt and said you know, Mr. Salvini, do you want to wear this when you're talking to the
4: refugees? (laughs) Ah.
6: There is a feeling that these, you know, these pro-Russian politicians who were very often taking money from or at least accepting kind of PR help from the Russians or had interactions with the Russians are part of the problem. They did have influence in a lot of societies. And the the feeling that they are partly responsible um, is now quite widespread. I mean, Nigel Farage in the UK is under (laughs) attack. You know, Marine Le Pen in France is under attack. So many, many of them are now being seen as having been irresponsible. And of course, these are the same politicians who say they hate liberal democracy and, you know, have autocratic leanings and would destroy institutions if they if they came to power.
4: Well, in fact, you're currently at Johns Hopkins University uh, teaching a course uh, appropriately titled Democracy. And I'm just curious, you know, with the Cold War having ended before most, if not all, of your students were even born, how do they view this war in Ukraine? Uh, What kind of questions do they ask you about, you know, what it all means?
6: Um, it's it, you're right. It's a fascinating moment. I, I was thinking about how 1989 shaped my worldview. Uh-huh. This war, I think, plus January the 6th is going to shape the worldview of a lot of Americans. These will be the two big events of this era for for people who are just coming of age. And I think they do see it, you know, very much the way we've we've just discussed as a as a moment when a democracy is fighting back against an autocracy suddenly issues that seemed very vague or hard to understand become black and white. I think it's also very important that this war kills a kind of myth that we had in the West, which was the myth of inevitability, that somehow liberal democracy is inevitable, that it will always be with us, that it will always win the battles, and that there's nothing in particular that we need to do in order to support it or keep it going. This was particularly damaging in the United States, where it seemed like you know, we could just let the professional politicians go and do their jobs. Um, none of us had to really participate in anything because our democracy was just fine. I think this, this, and as I say, and January the 6th are a moment when people see that that's not true, that there may have to be more public participation, that you might have to involve yourself in politics in ways that you didn't expect, just like the Ukrainians are right now.
4: We're taking a quick break. Stay with us.
5: Hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I dot com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit.
1: At UC San Diego, we understand that in order to turn the vast unknown into new cures or human connections or expansive culture, you have to be willing to venture further out. That's why we'll go as far as the International Space Station with cancer cells in hand and novel medicines in mind. That's why we map the seemingly randomness of forest fires and connect them with revolutionary AI to see where they'll appear next. And it's why we arrive on the San Diego shore from all over the world to bring different perspectives to our world's biggest challenges. When you push the boundaries of science, art, and culture, whole worlds open up. And at UC San Diego, that's where the real adventure starts. Learn more at ucsd.edu.
4: You know, Anne, I, I recently wrote an essay for The Atlantic where your work appears about how Republicans in our country undermine democracy at home. And that helps autocrats like Putin or Xi Jinping You know, we're seeing this play out in real time. As you point out, in Europe, there has been a shaming of uh, a lot of the political leaders who supported and praised Putin. Here in this country, you have followed how we've had our own leaders praising Putin as they call him an anti-woke hero and a warrior in the culture wars. And the Russian government even broadcasts uh, Tucker Carlson, who appears on Fox News, because of what he says in support of Putin or casting doubt on uh, those who are seeing with our own eyes what Putin is doing. How do Russian viewers actually get information? And how do you think Russia views somebody like Tucker Carlson and the other Trump apologists, both in the U.S. and in Europe?
6: The role of the Trump apologists is truly interesting. Because, of course, for me, it evokes the role of left-wing apologists for communism, you know, in, in the in the last century. And I think their behavior comes out of something similar. Their dislike of their own country, of the United States, of the nature of modern America, is so strong that they are looking for alternatives anywhere, even if those are autocratic alternatives. And they're willing to overlook the true nature of those autocratic states if that gives them a kind of stick with which they can beat their own country. And so the idea, first of all, that Putin is a Christian or that he represents some kind of white Christian Um, you know, anti-woke spirit. I mean, it's absurd on all kinds of levels. Um, Very few Russians are Christians. Almost none of them go to church. Very few of them have ever read the Bible. You know, one of the features of this war has been Russian bombing of cathedrals and churches. You know, but of course, the Russians themselves encourage it. I mean, I don't know exactly where Tucker gets his information, um, but some of it is quite specific. He's made specific comments about you know, things that the Ukrainians have done that somebody is feeding him information about how he should describe the war and giving him ideas. Um, And then, of course, that information is very, very useful for the Putin regime to play that back on Russian television. Um, Tucker Carlson appears quite frequently, and it's, you know, used as evidence that we have support in America. Um, And so he is literally a useful idiot. I mean, he is, Getting his information from someone with ties to Russia, I don't know who it is, and I don't want to speculate, that information is then being reproduced. It is then useful to the Russian regime. So he's acting as a conduit for Russian propaganda, which is extremely useful to them. Um, it's, it's a really ugly thing to see.
4: Mm-hmm. You know, I, I uh, like a lot of people, only knew about uh, President Zelensky from afar. <laughs> but what we've seen has been truly inspirational. And I think, but for him and his leadership, uh, we might not have the unity and the commitment that we need to keep supporting Ukraine in this fight. Have you ever met him, Anne? And and if so, can you give us some idea about how this former comedian and actor has grown into the principal defender of democracy and freedom in the world right now?
6: Um, the first time I met Zelensky or saw Zelensky was not that long after he was elected There was a conference, a sort of big event in Kiev. I was invited, he was speaking there. And he, when he spoke, he did a kind of performance. I mean, it's, you know, there was some comedy routine. One of his comedy troops came and pretended to be him. And, you know, then he stood up, you know, it was was funny. It was very well done. And afterwards people said, well, that's, I guess it's nice that the president of Ukraine is amusing, but you know, this is a country in war with Russia. Maybe we need something more. And people were really worried by that um and they didn't know how he would react in the case of a crisis one of the really interesting things about him though is how he got elected so he was in a television series that he wrote and produced called servant of the people in which he played an ordinary school teacher who accidentally becomes president um and it's it's a long story and the plot is complicated and you know and but a lot of the what the television series does is it makes fun of how ukrainians are over respectful of power you know once the he's a sort of you know, an ordinary guy, he becomes president. Suddenly people start genuflecting to him and, you know, he's mystified by that and so on. And I think one of the things that he's understood is that the way to reach people is to be an ordinary person, to have ordinary emotions. And in in a country that's used to feeling distance and sort of fear from the state and from power, which they've had for you know several hundred years, really, he has broken through and he you know, it's what he's wearing. He's wearing a T-shirt, not, not fatigues. He's not pretending to be a general. He's just an ordinary person who's fighting this war like so many are. He uses the language of ordinary people. He doesn't talk in kind of pompous tones. Um, he uses his own phone to make the videos that he's showing to people. So they're sort of, it's unprofessional. I mean, some of that is orchestrated, but it's orchestrated with a desire to be authentic and it works because it is authentic.
4: Mm-hmm. Um,
6: and so I think his... The, the he's trying to inspire people with bravery by acting out bravery himself. This is what bravery looks like. Look, here I am. Here's my chief of staff. Here's the head of the parliament. We're all here. We're in Kiev. We're not going anywhere. You know, we're not leaving the country. That was his first big video, you know, the first or second night of the war. And I think that has been really transformational. I know that people in Ukraine now turn him on every night. You know, He now makes a nightly video and there's a kind of national... However, people are now getting videos because, you know, whether it's through a Telegram channel or some other app, but people are getting them, watching them and they're inspirational. I would say only one thing, though, which is that Ukraine has a long history of being a kind of grassroots up country rather than a leadership down country. And I do think that even if anything happened to him, that they would keep fighting. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's a it's 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 what you're watching is this kind of self-organization you know this territorial army that people all kinds of people are now joining who have no experience fighting in the past that's not just because of him it's also you know he is he is learning from them as much as they learn from him so i think they would they would be fighting even without him
4: and and what about russia i know it's so difficult to get accurate factual information if you're in russia and we've seen a lot of protests. We've seen people being arrested. The latest numbers I saw were, you know, in the you know fifteen thousand plus area of people who've been thrown in jail for protesting. I mean, it's it's ironic uh, that in a time of so much technology about information being conveyed, we're having a harder time getting accurate information into Russia now than we did back in the Cold War the Soviet times when we had you know radio free europe we had short wave we had lots of uh, other you know ways of getting information how how do russians get accurate information so that they have some sense of what putin is doing
6: so that is an excellent question and a very very interesting one i testified in the senate foreign relations committee and said Exactly, this that one of the things we should be thinking about doing now is hiring all of those Russian journalists and television producers who are fleeing Moscow and employing them to create a Russian satellite channel um, that could reach people um, a little bit better. The Russians are trying to cut off all access to the outside world sort of app by app and station by station. Um, All of the Russian journalists have now been expelled from Moscow who had any independent standing. I spoke yesterday actually to friend of mine in Moscow, who is, she's sort of the last liberal journalist standing. And she says she doesn't want to leave her book collection, Oh, uh, which (laughs) you can understand. But everyone she knows is gone. Everybody's leaving. And so, you know, I really think it's the task now for our administration and for other European governments to figuring out what we're going to do. Do we need Russian satellite station, as I discussed? Do we need to be thinking about digital samizdat? Should there be people who are trying to organize communications inside Russia through email chains or through other kinds of connections? Um, what is the best way to reach Russians? I mean, there's a lot of creative thinking going on right now, you know, at the sort of lowest possible levels as people try and figure out exactly this problem. But, um, but it's not easy to solve. I mean, one almost wishes for shortwave radios back because at least, at least there was one channel, you know, on which it was possible to hear things.
4: Well, in fact, I think I heard the BBC was going to dig out their old shortwave, (laughs) you know, the radio communications equipment to see if they could actually uh, get into Russia. Well, Anne, I just have to close by number one, thanking you, because honestly, you are such a clear and level-headed source of insight and knowledge when it comes to this part of the world. But I also have to ask... As you look at the threats to our future, not just coming from Putin, but sadly, sometimes coming from ourselves, given your understanding and appreciation of history, are you optimistic?
6: So I am naturally pessimistic. I think anybody who spends their life studying Soviet history has, you know, has has some issues, but... One of the conclusions I've recently come to, um, and this is particularly true in, in our country, is that it's very irresponsible for someone like me to be pessimistic about our country and about the future of democracy. Because really, what happens tomorrow depends on choices that we make today. So nothing is inevitable. Liberal democracy is not inevitable, but also decline is not inevitable. Autocracy is not inevitable. And so I think we Owe it particularly to younger people to continue to be optimistic. It's only by thinking about a better and more positive future and then figuring out how to get there that we will be able to achieve it. So I remain an optimist. I believe that people are good and that they want to create better societies and that people instinctively understand what's justice and what's injustice. And I, you know, I, I do believe that if we try and if we if we want it to happen, that Ukraine can win and liberal democracy can prevail. Oh, from
4: your lips, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot thank you enough, Ann Applebaum. And I hope you wouldn't mind if I set up my own channel with you to stay in touch with you, because uh, occasionally (laughs) I do get a chance to, uh, you know, kibitz with those who are making these uh, literally life and death decisions for Ukrainians, for our, our future. And I so value your insight, and I look forward to continuing the conversation.
6: Thank you. It was a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much.
4: Anne Applebaum's newest book is called "Twilight of Democracy." The Seductive Lore of Authoritarianism. I hope you will all pick it up and recommend it to your friends. There's a lot that uh, sadly applies right here in our own country. We'll be right back.
3: This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class.
1: At UC San Diego, we understand that in order to turn the vast unknown into new cures or human connections or expansive culture, you have to be willing to venture further out. That's why we'll go as far as the International Space Station, with cancer cells in hand and novel medicines in mind. That's why we map the seemingly randomness of forest fires and connect them with revolutionary AI to see where they'll appear next. And it's why we arrive on the San Diego shore from all over the world. To bring different perspectives to our world's biggest challenges. When you push the boundaries of science, art, and culture, whole worlds open up. And at UC San Diego, that's where the real adventure starts. Learn more at UCSD.edu. Now, I
4: know our next guest pretty well. Mike McFaul served as America's ambassador to Russia, starting when I was Secretary of State. Before that, he served on the National Security Council at the White House. He's a professor of international relations at Stanford University and also an international affairs analyst for NBC News. Hello, Mike. Hey, Secretary Clinton. Good to see you. Oh, well, please call me Hillary, my friend. All right. Old habits. <laughs> I could call you ambassador. You could call me no, secretary. No, no. We'd sound very official, <laughs> I think. Let's not do that. <laughs> well, it is so great to have on this podcast Ambassador Mike McFall. And to get us started, I, I want to set the stage for our listeners. Can you describe... Uh, what our relationship with Russia was like when you and I joined the Obama administration in 2009 and how it has evolved.
7: Well, first, it's great to see you again. (laughs) Um, So when we came into the government, uh, everybody needs to remember there was a different president. Uh, President Medvedev was the president. Uh, Putin was the prime minister. Russia just invaded Georgia in August 2008, and U.S.-Russia relations were at a at that time, at its lowest point ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, the Bush administration had a pretty tepid response. I think it's fair to say uh, they did not sanction anybody. They didn't send military assistance. You have to think about all the things we're debating now. Uh, they did not do, and we came in several months later uh, under the banner of the reset, as you know well. Uh, um, but but I think it's been misunderstood what the reset was about. The reset was about trying to get some things done that were good for the American people and good for our security interests. And you played a, a, a central role in that. Uh, things like the New START Treaty, reducing you know, 30% of nuclear weapons in the world, uh, new supply routes for our soldiers in Afghanistan, uh, sanctions on Iran, the most comprehensive sanctions ever, multilateral at that time. I would add one more thing to that early period uh, that I think is important for your listeners to understand is that while we were doing all that cooperation, we were not checking our values at the door. <laughs> you personally, and in particular, I wanna make make sure people understand that. That is to say that when you traveled to, to Russia, you met with the government and Medvedev and Putin, but then you also met with human rights activists and civil society leaders. When President Obama did that, he did the same. Uh, 2009, his his first trip there as president. He first day was government, second day civil society. That was our policy, right? Mm-hmm. Dual track engagement. And by the way, when all that was happening in the Medvedev years, it was no big deal. You know, Obama had a roundtable with all the chief opposition leaders. So did you, and it was kind of no big deal. It was not. It was right. not news.
4: It's important to remember we were at least in a a position where we were talking with and even negotiating with the then uh, president of Russia. What happened? How did we get from there to here in uh, your expert opinion?
7: Two things changed. Very consequential. One, Putin decided to run for re-election to become president again. He he thought, you know, Medvedev was drinking too much reset Kool-Aid from his point of view. Mm -hmm. He's getting Mm -hmm. too soft with us. And then in between the time he announced that he was running, so he announces in September 2011 the elections in March 2012. and in between, there was a parliamentary election. And it was stolen, kind of, you know, falsified, five, six, seven percent, kind of the normal levels, <laughs> just so you know, I remember sitting in the situation room saying, this is no big deal. This is just a normal Russian election under Vladimir Putin. But two things happened. Uh, and one of them uh, it was you were directly responsible for. Uh, one, you issued a statement about those elections not being free and fair. I think you were in Vilnius at the time, if I'm not mistaken.
4: I was actually at an OSCE meeting, so that's right. It was, that's right. Uh, you know, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and one of the. Goals of American diplomacy, literally since post World War II, was to promote and protect uh, free and fair elections.
7: Exactly, and and I remember it vividly, just so you know, Hillary, because I was at my son's football game in Maryland <laughs> and uh, trying to find a quiet space to speak to your aide at the time, Jake Sullivan, because uh, I was the guy that cleared that statement for the White House on a Saturday, mm-hmm. and your statement plus. Russians going out onto the streets to protest that uh, falsified election, right? First 500, then 5,000, then hundreds of thousands of people uh, protesting. First time you'd seen that kind of protesting in Russia since 1991, the year the Soviet Union collapsed. And Putin put those two things together. And he said, aha, there's a threat to my regime here. And it's Hillary Clinton's fault. It's the Mm -hmm. West's fault. And mm-hmm. I, th- I really think, you know, he's paranoid about democracy, right? Right. With, with good right. reason, by the way. Mm-hmm. But that became the drama that leads to the events today, because two years after those protests, there were major protests in Ukraine. By the way, mm-hmm. I think you were in another meeting in Europe <laughs> when Yanukovych was supposed to come sign an EU agreement. And he got cold feet at the time. And he's, you know, because Putin put a lot of pressure on him. Uh, by that time I was working in Moscow and I remember they they gave him a big a financial aid package to not sign that agreement.
4: And Yanukovych was that at that time the president of Ukraine. So That's right. Just yeah. for people he, who may not know, right?
7: Right. And he was coming to an I want to say another meeting that you were at if I'm not mistaken.
4: Yeah, I was uh, in Ukraine. Yeah. I actually I I remember I was I was in Ukraine. And, you know, there was such a sense of uh, hope and optimism, particularly among young Ukrainians. And, you know, their hopes were to move toward Europe. They wanted to be part right. of the European Union. And that was a separate issue from NATO that they wanted to be considered Europeans. Uh, they're in literally the largest landmass country uh, other than Russia that is in Europe. And they wanted to look west.
7: Right. Right. Well, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, Yanukovych did not sign that accession agreement with the European unions. And um, a a journalist then turned parliamentarian, his name is Mustafa Naim, got onto Facebook and said, this is outrageous. We are European. He said, come to the streets. And eventually uh, they came to the streets. And that was again for Putin. There it is again, Mass mobilization. He doesn't believe that people can do this on their own. There's got to be the the hand of the United States and the CIA. It then got violent, as you remember. By this time, you were no longer uh, Secretary of State, as I recall. That's right. I left,
4: yeah, February 1st, 2013. Right, right.
7: right. So this had happened, you know, after uh, Secretary Kerry Mm -hmm. was in place. But Mm
4: -hmm.
7: the mobilization again, that's what they call the revolution of dignity. Yanukovych fled. And Putin decided, okay, here's the the hidden hand of the Americans again. And that's when he invaded Ukraine the first time, seized Crimea, supported the separatists. But ever since, he's been trying to undermine that democratic uh, government that took over. Ever since, through all kinds of different ways. And as he said the night before he invaded, I watched that speech. It was this rant all over the place. Took 58 minutes for him to make his argument. Um, And by the way, you know, as a professor, uh, let me say, if you need 58 minutes to make your argument, you don't know what your (laughs) argument is. Um, But there were two seeds of it in there. And to this day, this is what it is about. He said, we're going to destroy the Ukrainian army and we're going to do denazification, which means to kill Mr. Zelensky, to wipe out his government. So this is about him trying to roll back the revolution of dignity Mm -hmm. from 2014.
4: Mike, I want to I go back a little bit because I know you were born and raised in Montana. How did you become interested in Russia and become a Russian expert?
7: Wow, we're going way back. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, was, I grew up in Montana, uh, never been to California, let alone <laughs> abroad until uh, as a 17-year-old kid, I flew to Stanford. I was an undergraduate at Stanford. But I got interested, Hillary, in high school. I was on the high school debate team, and my junior year in Bozeman Senior High, the topic was to improve U.S. trade policy. And so my partner and I ran a case, as they're called in debate, to grant the Soviet Union most favored nation status. That was our case. Mm -hmm. By the way, something I later disagreed with, but at the time, that's how I got Mm -hmm. interested. And um, when I showed up, you know, it was the fall of 1981, so... President Reagan had just been elected. Uh, He was talking about, you know, the evil empire, and it, it felt like a very scary time to me as a young kid. And so fall quarter of my freshman year, I enrolled in two classes that really had a big impact on my life. First year Russian, which I then took, you know, for many years. And then, you know, a course on how nations deal with each other and i was animated by an idea that that you know in, in different ways has been a part of my thinking ever since you know i wanted to see the soviets themselves you know i was wondering well what is this about the evil empire and i'm i'm not sure i believe ronald reagan mm-hmm. and so i wanted to get to the soviet union and so you know most kids at stanford they go to london paris florence for their junior year abroad the end of my sophomore year uh, i went to leningrad i went to leningrad state university and you got to remember, like, this is 1983. Imagine that phone call to my mom, uh, oh, you man. know, who, who, <laughs> who thought that California was a communist country, you know, and suddenly <laughs> her son's going to, you know, the evil empire. But, um, and, you know, basically ever since that, that was how I got kind of interested in yeah. thinking about the place.
4: That's really an interesting story because you've been evolving ever since. Yes. And, you ended up being our ambassador to Russia. And I remember very well the challenges that you and your family faced, because I think, Mike, you also posed a real challenge, a real, in their view, threat to their mentality, starting with Putin, but going on down. You wanted to live your life. Your kids were with you initially. You were engaged in the community, you were on social media. And then we started to get very troubling you know, messages about how the government of Russia, and that had to start with Putin, was really making life hard for you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think, again, people who are just for the first time maybe tuning in because Ukraine is so dramatic and so horrific may not have at all the, the background that you certainly do about how we ended up where we are?
7: Yeah. Um, so remember, uh, we left out a few chapters of my history, and I'll, I'll go through them quickly. But, you know, my initial time in the Soviet Union, I was like, oh, this place isn't so bad. Uh, I went back in 85, understanding Russian better, and I got deeper into the society. And then I I came out a militant anti-communist and and a militant pro-democrat. And then I lived in the Soviet Union. Um, I was a Fulbright scholar in 1990, 91. You know, that's when there was mass mobilization, democratic movement. And I worked with a group that you probably know, the National Democratic Institute. Sure do. And it was just a euphoric. You just got to remember, it was such a euphoric moment.
4: I remember because you know the the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, and then the the years you're describing um, two years later led yeah. to the fall of the Soviet Union right. in 91.
7: So at that period, uh, groups like NDI and and you know I then opened the office in Moscow in 1992 for NDI,
4: the National Democratic
7: Institute, to, right. funded
4: by the United States government. Yes. Actually, yes, um, and
7: it's affiliated with the Democratic Party, and we mm-hmm. were there to help uh, do political party development. But we were not mm-hmm. we were there at the invitation of the government. I think that's the part that people mm-hmm. get wrong. They wanted us there. And, you know, I was a rock star. We were these young, idealistic people and got to know, you know, people that later became the opposition to Putin when I showed up uh, two decades later. And I tell you that piece because Putin knows that. But fast forward to when I showed up as ambassador, You know, before I had gotten there, these massive protests had been taking place and Putin went out of his way to criticize you personally. He said that you had sent a signal to those protesters. And so I arrived right in the in in the as that was all happening. And, you know, I, I, I just I remember my last meeting with you before I left. You told me three things. You said, be strong. Don't forget about our values, and you were the person that told me to get on Twitter. I don't know if you remember that, but you <laughs> said you said I, I, I'm, I'm still on Twitter, by the way, and uh, it's an important platform for me. But but your argument was we got to reach out to Russian society, we got to engage with them. So I did that, but the conditions had changed, right? It was one thing to meet the opposition uh, when Medvedev was president when we traveled together, um, you probably don't remember, but one of the times we traveled together, like I want to say 2010 or so, uh, I was actually meeting with a group of opposition leaders in the hotel room and you walked by and I grabbed your eye and you came over and you, you, you did a vodka shot with them all. One of them, <laughs> one of them is a guy named Boris Nemtsov who who five years oh. later was assassinated, but you made a huge right. impression on them. And it was, you know, but it wasn't dangerous then, you know, that mm-hmm. that was a different era. By the time I showed up as ambassador, Putin was completely, you know, nervous about his regime. So they used me as a target of, you know, to say that I was sent by you and Obama to go mm-hmm. orchestrate the revolution. And so that, that was my fate.
4: Yeah. No, I mean, his his uh, paranoia just seemed to grow and grow. And, you know, there have been a lot of armchair psychologists trying to figure out what's happened to Putin, uh, why Putin is so aggressive and, and really risk-taking right now. Does he have some health issues, yeah. physical, mental? Some people have said he looks puffy, looks like he's taking steroids. Right. I mean, do you have any... Um, I don't know about uh, insight, maybe too, you know, too much to ask for, but any observations about what's going on with him personally?
7: So a couple of things, and it's speculation, of course, right? But one, remember, even when I was ambassador, we were writing lots of cables back explaining how isolated he was back then. That's eight years ago, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
7: Uh, you know, when, when you came out to see him as secretary of state, we had to drive out to his compound, right? We didn't meet in the Kremlin. That's because he always met all of his people out in his country estate. And he would Mm -hmm. sit out there, this is several years ago, barely meet with his advisors, not meet with many foreigners. It was a major deal that he would meet with you. Very few leaders in the world, even back then, had FaceTime with him. And he's been in power for 22 years, right? So when you get to be in power that long, you don't think that anybody can tell you anything. That's right. And COVID added to his isolation. Uh, he doesn't get very good information. He just gets this secret information from the KGB guys. And it's all distorted about Ukraine. You know, he's already uh, removed some of his intelligence generals. That's the way, exactly right. Because, oh, we've heard that. Because mm-hmm. he got bad information about how the Ukrainians were going to receive them, so I think he's been very isolated for a long time. Has been starting to believe his own propaganda, and then you know has this other piece that I think is important for people to understand. He thinks of himself as a great, you know, Catherine the Great, Peter the Great, restorer of the Russian Empire. Uh, wants to bring the Slavic peoples together, as he explained before he invaded Ukraine. And fundamentally, doesn't understand Ukrainians. Like, he just doesn't understand. They aren't just people with an accent, uh, but basically Russians, right? That's what he thinks. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And he right. drastically miscalculated in thinking that this was going to be a cakewalk. And you can see he's he's gradually getting more and more angry, saying more and more crazy things, talking about the internal, they call it the fifth column, right? The people inside Russia. Yes.
4: That's an old communist exactly. sort of Leninist, Stalinist term, it isn't is. it? Exactly mm-hmm. It
7: is. That was scary, uh, especially because I think of, you know, my Russian friends who he's thinking of um, and guys like Mr. Navalny, who's, you know, in jail right now and from jail calling on Russians to protest this horrible war. So he feels mm-hmm. like he's getting more and more unhinged. Um, I don't think he's suicidal. So I think we should be... You know, we need to be firm and not, you know, these threats he's making about you know, nuclear weapons. We we should make sure that they haven't changed their policy on that. But we should also not overreact to his threats. I think at times, mm-hmm. you know, he says, well, if, you, if we send these planes, these MiG-29s, he'll escalate. Well, what does that mean? He's going to escalate. Like, I, I think we need to be a little stronger and, and more confident.
4: I agree with that. So I agree with that. Yeah, no. I mean, in fact, that's what I wanted to ask you. I think that the Biden administration, um, and like like you, I've I've talked to some of the people in it. Many of them were in the Obama administration, even the Clinton administration. So half of them worked for you. Me. They're all they're all yeah, your former know, people. Now that
7: I think about it, they all work for you.
4: Yeah, and they're they're people that we know and respect, and. I thought that the initial phases of their reactions were were really uh, very uh, strong. And I was impressed by their willingness to release intelligence in order to undercut what was clearly a plan of Putin's for a false flag operation to make it seem like somehow the Ukrainians were attacking Russians and therefore he had to go in and protect the Russians. So I do think that the accelerated pace of providing lethal weaponry to Ukraine is really important. But what do you think, uh, Mike? Again, it's just you and and me kind of, you know, throwing stuff up on the wall, see what will stick. Um, What should the U.S. and NATO be doing in the days and weeks and months ahead? And second part of that, have you been surprised at how strongly um, the Ukrainians have defended themselves?
7: Well, let's let's flip them around. Let's start with the Ukrainians, and then what we should do to help them. So I'm. It's been amazing, right? I mean, uh, the institute I run out here at Stanford, Hillary, we actually have been do- training activists uh, in Ukraine starting in two thousand five. We had our first uh, fellow from there, uh, from Ukraine. We're up to we now have three hundred alums uh, throughout Ukraine. So people think of me as a Russia guy, but um, you know, I I, I wrote my first book about Ukraine in two thousand six. And uh, because of that network, I've been in touch with Ukrainians throughout this entire war. Um, I hosted President Zelensky here at Stanford last September. The only place he spoke publicly, his first uh, Ukrainian president to come to California. So I got to know him, you know, we had a great day together and he's a very engaging guy and he's funny and, you know, but nobody knew how he would respond in this moment, right? He's a new guy to politics. And I just think he's a heroic figure. I spoke to him just four or five days ago, by chance. Uh, I was hitting the Skype button to talk to one of our alums uh, who works for him, his name's Sergey, and the screen came on just like we're talking, and there was Zelensky in his bunker. And he said, Mike, you look just like you, you, you looked when I was in California. I said, Mr. President, you don't. Uh, you know, he's got his <laughs> scraggly beard and his T-shirt. Yeah. Um, but Hillary, I, let me tell you honestly, that was not by accident. I was speaking to 200 members of Congress just four hours later, and that shows you some of their savvy of their public communication strategy. They Mm -hmm. knew that, and they knew 20-minute conversation with Zelensky before I went to join Speaker Pelosi would have an effect on Mm -hmm. what I said, and it did. So the the battlefield, uh, they're doing heroic work on the battlefield. I also think in terms of public communications, the speech he gave uh, to Congress, brilliant. And that's why, in my view, we should do everything we can do to help them win. And by win, I mean Mm -hmm. to fight the Russians to a stalemate so they have to negotiate. And and what I would say on the the strategy so far, I'd say three of the four things they've done really well, uh, and they have to keep doing it. So strengthening NATO, moving our forces and material to our frontline states, great. Uh, A plus. Military assistance, historic levels. We've never done something as big. I always wanted more. I think they should have sent those MiG-29s, for instance, and they should have done that quietly, not in the public mm-hmm. back and forth.
4: Exactly. But but,
7: mm-hmm. but generally, I, that, I support that and the sanctions. I'm mm-hmm. uh, very impressed with what they've done on sanctions. That's been terrific. But I would say two things. One, the communications inside Russia, uh, we're not doing as well as we need to. We need to get mothers of those soldiers to understand what's going on to Ukraine so that when the next draft date comes up and it's coming up I think April 1st, they say, you know, I don't want to give my kid to this this horrible war. And mm-hmm. that's hard. I don't want to trivialize how hard that is because they're closing down that space. But we got to get more creative on that. And as you know, the professor that I am, uh, when I talk to my our colleagues in the government, I say, okay, you, you got straight A's right now. But that was just the first midterm. We got a ways to go here, folks. And, um, you know, you put 600 oligarchs on the sanctions list. Well, there's a list of 6,000. Um, and so you, you got to keep at it. And especially on the weapons and, and sanctions, uh, it's not sufficient just to hold. You got to keep ratcheting up the pressure on the economy mm-hmm. and keep giving them the weapons to defend themselves.
4: Oh, I completely agree with that, Mike. Um, specifically, what more... Could be and should be uh, done in terms of getting information into Russia. We know, you know, the Kremlin is trying to block any kind of channels, but there's so much. I mean, this is not you know 1950. There's lots of ways of getting information in. So specifically, what would you advise? Not just the American government, but all the NATO governments, any allied government, and and individuals as well as corporations.
7: Yes. Well. One thing we should do immediately is to help two in particular. I can be very specific, uh, TV Rain and Echo Mosque, uh the radio station. By the way, you were on Echo Musk I remember.
4: I remember. We went to the studio. I remember. Uh,
7: they they have your photo on the wall, just so you know, after that. Oh. So when I would go there as ambassador, I would walk by it. And that, you know, just to, for people who don't know, this is the number one radio, multimedia co- company started in 1990, this iconic Echo Moscovy I mean, everybody listens to it, millions of listeners throughout the country. They just were shut down a couple weeks ago. And TV Rain is the last independent TV program. They're reconstituting themselves outside of the country, and we should support them. And they'll figure mm-hmm. out through VPNs and you know, various ways to how to penetrate their cyber wall. It's not as good as the Chinese. They're not, they don't have that in place. Mm-hmm. Um, even more creatively, text messaging is a very important uh, information push. We know that from our elections, right? Um, yes. Opposition knows that inside Russia. We're not doing enough in terms of that kind of messaging. And that's, that's complicated. And, you know, who does it and what messaging? But I think in this moment, that's another place that we we want to be present. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger did this video a few days ago, and um, you know he's very popular in Russia.
4: That's what I've heard. You know? Yes, and the video was really powerful. You've seen it, yeah.
7: I, I just saw it. I this did. Morning. I saw
4: it. I saw it on Twitter.
7: <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. Um, uh, and by the way, Twitter's blocked, but there's still through VPNs. Those All those platforms, Takte, their Facebook-like platform. I worry about YouTube, by the way. YouTube's a very important platform inside Russia. I, I predict that'll be the next one that, that Putin goes after. But back to Arnold, like that, he's an iconic figure in Russia. So for him to do that, pieces of that interview will eventually show up on people's smartphones. Um, and mm-hmm. we got to think of other ways to do kind of, you know, creative things like that. One other thing that's happening, for instance, just to give you a flavor of what uh, Ukrainians and Russian opposition folks are doing, they're saying go on to restaurant websites and when you give reviews, start writing "Stop the war," ah. right? So the little things like that. Just you gotta you gotta be full in. That's the part I think we need to do more work on.
4: Well, you pass that on. I'll pass it okay. on. We'll see if we can get you know more of a, a reaction. We'll be back right after this quick break.
3: This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History class.
1: At UC San Diego, we understand that in order to turn the vast unknown into new cures or human connections or expansive culture, you have to be willing to venture further out. That's why we'll go as far as the International Space Station, with cancer cells in hand and novel medicines in mind. That's why we map the seemingly randomness of forest fires and connect them with revolutionary AI to see where they'll appear next. And it's why we arrive on the San Diego shore from all over the world. To bring different perspectives to our world's biggest challenges. When you push the boundaries of science, art, and culture, whole worlds open up. And at UC San Diego, that's where the real adventure starts. Learn more at ucsd.edu. really
4: describe for Americans why we have so much at stake in what's going on in Ukraine? Assuming that Ukraine continues this heroic resistance, we're facing, you know, weeks, maybe months of attacks and stalemates and everything that goes with it, continuing threats from Putin. Why should Americans keep caring? Uh, why should they be willing to sacrifice, uh, whether it's increasing gas prices or other economic blowback from these very comprehensive sanctions? Yeah,
7: great question. And a hard one to answer, but let me frame it the way I think about it. This is a fight between autocrats and Democrats. Uh, It is a fight of ideas, as we were talking about before. Putin was never... was never really threatened by nato expansion he was threatened by democratic expansion exactly. and he always got uh you know it was always democratic expansion led to him complaining about nato so, so this is a fight about that and let me just paint two scenarios if Zelensky wins and and there's a stalemate and putin is repelled that has lots of important positive consequences for American national security interests, right? First of all, our NATO allies will be less nervous than they are today because he'll be pushed back. Our allies and friends in Asia will feel more secure. Uh, Xi Jinping better think twice uh, about invading Taiwan, uh, looking at what a fiasco, what he thought was the, the third most powerful army in the, in the world one that he cooperates with, one that they have a lot of weapon systems together, right? Uh, And now look at how Mm -hmm. poorly Mm -hmm. they're performing in Ukraine. And if they lose there, that's good for deterring China from invading Taiwan. And by the way, if the sanctions help to keep the pressure on the economy, Xi Jinping better think twice about invading and facing those sanctions. Uh, That's a good Mm -hmm. thing. But the opposite is also true. If Putin wins and those fighting for democracy lose inside Ukraine, that has negative consequences all around the world as well. Our NATO allies will need more reassurance, and that means more military spending from us to help make sure that Putin doesn't attack them. Our allies in the Middle East will be nervous uh, and start hedging their bets. You know, maybe we need to work with the Russians because we can't, these Americans mm-hmm. are not so reliable. I'm thinking of Israel first and foremost. And out in Asia, the same thing, like um you know, those are fence sitters will think, well, maybe we better lean more towards the Chinese because the Americans didn't prevail. So I think the consequences actually are much bigger than just in Ukraine. Winning has a a very positive consequence in terms of how uh, other people will deal with us in the future.
4: Well, that's very well said. And I, I agree completely. And the and the only additional point I would make is that I think it's also good for our own democracy here at home because the apologists and, frankly, uh, shall we say, fellow travelers of a nationalistic, even violent opposition, as we saw on January 6th in our own country, will have to think twice. Yes. Uh, their base will be rattled. And uh, those who promote undermining our institutions ignoring the rule of law trying to undermine our elections everything that we know uh, unfortunately is part of the agenda of the uh, opposition in America i think that too will Great be point. you know shaken
7: absolutely i mean yeah. don't forget uh, i don't need to tell you but maybe your listeners have forgotten putin's been trying to undermine democracy Uh, for a long, long time, including our own democracy, including undermining you personally uh, during our Mm -hmm. elections for a reason. I mean, you know, small D democratic ideas, small L liberal ideas are a threat to him and leaders around the world, including you, uh, that support those are threats to him. And for years he's been cultivating ties with, I call it the illiberal international, right? Populist, nationalist leaders, you know Urban and Hungary Salvini in Italy Le Pen in France Farage in the UK and Mr Trump and his you know the people around him the Steve Bannon's of the world they have been he's been making progress i think the good yes. news out of this horrible crisis is it's like you just said it's a lot harder to play those games and line up with Putin but that's all the more important if he if he wins victorious all those kind of groups will now, you know, start sprouting again and say, "Well, he's evil, but you know, he's a strong leader. We can't, we can't let them go back to that. We've got. That's why mm-hmm. Putin has to lose in Ukraine."
4: And I guess the final thing I, I would ask you, Mike, is: Does uh, does Putin and his uh, regime survive this? Win or lose?
7: So. Um, you know, I'm a political scientist and I would say we're not very good at predicting the future. Um, I also worked five years in the government. And I'd say the CIA is not very good at it either. Uh, just so so we, they didn't get the Green Revolution in Iran, right? Or the Arab Spring, right? Or the Russian protests or Ukraine. But so but with that humble caveat, let me, let me say uh, two things I, I know I'm very certain of. One, I'm absolutely sure that the Ukrainians eventually will win. Uh, I don't know when they're going to win, but Putin doesn't have the army to occupy this country, the largest country in Europe, 40 million people. Stalin had millions in the Red Army when he put his puppet regimes in place after 45. Putin does not have that capability, and he doesn't have the ideas. Stalin was repelling real fascists, and when he liberated mm-hmm. countries, he said he could make the argument, we're building a new society, communist, and he attracted just enough Uh, lackeys to help them build those places. Putin doesn't have that. So Ukrainians will fight door by door with guns, acts of nonviolent civic resistance. There's no doubt in my mind that eventually, though, they will repel Putin's soldiers. I just don't know when that should be. We should hasten that. But you asked a different question. You asked about Russia. And here's the way I think about it. It reminds me of the Brezhnev era, You know, Brezhnev was in power for almost 20 years, one of the longest uh, serving general secretaries in the early phases. You know, he was he was kind of he did okay uh, in the 60s and then the 70s came along and he went on this run of victories where communist regimes were taking over the world. Right. So Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos and then Angola and Mozambique and Africa Nicaragua, even in our hemisphere, that was 79. And so he had like five wins. And by the way, Hillary, we kind of looked like we did recently, right? We were divided amongst ourselves, lots of, uh, you know, civil rights movement, anti war movement, Nixon. These were times where we didn't look like we were so strong ourselves, right? So there's a lot of parallels. And then Brezhnev overreached, he invaded Afghanistan. And he thought right. it was going to be a cakewalk, you know, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan. We're just going to add one more stand to, they called it the 16th Republic. And we all know how that ended. It was a disaster for the Soviet Union. And it was one, not the only factor, but it was one of the factors that was the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union. It took a decade, but but it, it helped unravel things. And I think this is the beginning of the end of, of Putinism. Even if Putin survives in power, which he may very well do, it's a pretty horrific dictatorship. But he's lost the elites, Hillary. I got to tell you, like, I'm in touch with Russians all the time, including people that were kind of pro-Putin, right? He violated the contract, which was, I'll be your dictator in return for a stable economy. Well, that's over now. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. And I just think it will eventually... You know, maybe it'll take one more leader that won't have the authority, but I do think this is the beginning of the end. I just don't know how long that process will be, but it's very hard for me to imagine a Putin-like figure in power in Russia 20 years from now. I think that's really unlikely. So that's a sliver of good news. We just don't know when that good news gets delivered.
4: Yeah. No. And, and we just have to keep our nerve and be patient yes. <laughs> and be smart about, you know, the strategies the we course. employ and absolutely stay the course. Well, I can't tell you what a delight it is for me to have this time to talk with you, Mike. And I really look to you for uh you know, interpretation and guidance about how we can stay the course. And thank you so much for, you know, sharing this time with me and our listeners.
7: I really enjoyed it, Hillary. Let's do it again sometime.
4: Thank you. Bye-bye. Mike McFaul's most recent book is From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American ambassador in Putin's Russia. You can also follow him, like I do, on Twitter, at McFall. Recent events have proven what we know to be true, that we are all connected, that what happens abroad matters here at home, and that an attack on democracy anywhere is a threat to democracy everywhere. So as we stand with the people of Ukraine in the difficult weeks and probably months ahead, it's also important that we stand with one another and stand up for our democracy right here at home. Before I go, as a reminder, I'll be answering your questions on a future episode of You and Me Both with a special guest. Maybe you've got more questions about what's going on with Ukraine and Russia, or what's happening with attacks on our democracy right here in America. Or maybe there's something more personal or lighthearted that you want to ask me. No matter what your questions might be, write to you and youandmebothpod at gmail.com. Or you can leave a voice message at 202-780-7515. And who knows, I might just answer your question on the show. You and Me Both is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Julie Subrin, Kathleen Russo, and Rob Russo with help from Huma Abedin, Oscar Flores, Lindsey Hoffman, Brianna Johnson, Nick Merrill, Laura Olin, Lona Valmoro, and Benita Zaman. Our engineer is Zach McNeese, and original music is by Forrest Gray. If you like You and Me Both, please tell someone else about it. And if you're not already a subscriber, what are you waiting for? You can subscribe to You and Me Both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Take care of yourself and each other, and we'll be back next week.
3: welcome to the scene to scene podcast i am your host valerie complex today i am chatting with G young you G young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series expats
0: i think i learn a little
3: bit with every character that i've play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast.